If you are enjoying Paddywhack, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can find a link in the episode description. All my work is self-funded, and any support would be greatly appreciated. You are listening to Paddywhack, written and performed by Francis Martineau, Episode 2. It wasn't long after the boy returned home from his holidays that his Aunt Gillian came to stay. She was there one lunchtime when he came in from riding his bike, and she gave him a strange kind of smile as he sat down at the table. He wasn't even sure at first that it was a smile, because it slid away from her face so fast afterwards. Then she was quiet all through lunch which for some reason he didn't understand, made his mother and father quiet also. Nobody said anything, so he thought it better not to say anything either. He asked to get down from the table as soon as he thought he would be allowed and ran straight back to his bike outside. She was still there when he came back for his tea, and it was only then that his mother told him she would be staying for some time. His aunt smiled that strange smile again as his mother was telling him this. Then looking at him with what he thought was a very sad face, she said, Is that all right with you, Andy? He wasn't expecting her to ask him anything like that, and so had no idea what to reply. As he was still wondering what he ought to say, he noticed how very bright and blue her eyes were eyes not at all like his mother's, which were so dark that they sometimes seemed almost black. But it was the sad look on his aunt's face that made him feel he ought to say something back. So he said yes. That same night, right after his mother had put him to bed and before he'd begun to feel sleepy, he heard the sound of crying coming from downstairs. The crying was so very loud at first that it frightened him particularly when a wailing voice rode up as well, all mixed in with the crying. I just couldn't stand it, Cecilia. I just couldn't. I tried hard to stay with him, but he he got worse and worse. In the end, he would lose his temper the moment I tried to talk to him about anything. I'm so sorry. There was more crying then, and through it he heard his mother's voice, although not loud enough for him to be able to hear what she was saying. He knew that if he got up and went to the top of the stairs he would be able to hear better, but he decided not to, and soon it all became quiet again. 
Then he heard footsteps on the stairs which faded away without coming closer, and he knew that they had to be his aunt going to bed in the other part of the house. But even though there were no more sounds, he was still afraid, and wasn't at all sure if he wouldn't be able to go to sleep without calling his mother. He knew she didn't like it when he called, so he lay in bed thinking of how bright and blue his aunt's eyes had been when she'd asked him that question. It was better to think about that, rather than the crying, because he'd never heard a grown-up cry before. He'd always assumed they weren't allowed to, that it was something you had to stop doing when you were older. But it was obvious neither his father nor his mother liked it when he cried. His mother and father never cried, so surely it must be the same for his aunt as well. The next morning at breakfast, though, she didn't look like she'd been crying, and she and his mother were even laughing together when he came in and sat down. They made a lot of noise when they laughed together, and it was only then that he saw for the first time how alike they were, despite their eyes being so different. It was as if they had the same face when they laughed. "'Your aunt and I were thinking it was about time you learned to ride,' said his mother, as she put his boiled egg and toast fingers down in front of him. "'We were remembering what fun we had with our ponies when we were your age, and how much fun it would be for you as well.' Your aunt rides very well, you know. Oh, you ride just as well as I do, Cecilia, said his aunt. It's only that you've not done it in so long. Oh, no, Gillian. Don't you remember getting on your first pony when you were only four and everyone was so amazed because it looked like you'd already been riding for years? You knew everything right away without being told and you never fell off. When I first got on, I fell off immediately and only got back on because the riding instructor insisted. Well, you certainly made up for it afterwards, said his aunt, and they both burst out laughing again as if it was the funniest thing in the world. The boy couldn't figure out what they found so funny, but at least they didn't come back to the idea of teaching him how to ride. He didn't like that idea at all. Who on earth would ever want to ride a pony when there were bicycles around? There are always new things to learn about riding a bike. Only yesterday, for example, he discovered a new way of taking the sharp corner at the far end of the church without slowing down in the slightest, and he couldn't wait to try it again. He was glad, though, that his aunt was feeling so much better. Perhaps it hadn't been her he'd heard crying last night after all, because while he was eating his egg, she and his mother talked and laughed without stopping. They didn't even stop when he got down from the table, and slipped quietly out of the door. The 20th of September, 1942. Dear Rebecca, you probably know by now that your uncle found me so this letter is unlikely to be much of a surprise. He caught up with me in Cape Town, right before my company was due to leave for the front, and asked if I would write to you. I should let you know right away that I have never been much of a one for letters, but when he told me of the trouble you're in at home right now, because of the time we spent together, it was obvious I had to write. 
I can only say I'm very sorry about how things have turned out. It's hard for me to believe that those good times of ours have ended up with you in so much trouble and that you're having to deal with it all alone. I've been in a pretty bad frame of mind since your uncle told me the news. Being as far away as I am and not able to be of much help. I don't even know after all this time whether you even want to hear from me, but your uncle seemed to think it would help. We didn't speak about it at the time, but I thought we both understood that what with the war and the distance we'd be very unlikely to see each other again. I certainly didn't dare let myself believe that anything permanent could come of it, much as I enjoyed being with you. Of course, I recognize it's different now that there's a baby involved, and what your uncle most wanted was for me to take on my part of the responsibility for that. Well, to be quite honest, that's a hard one for me to get my head around, given that I've never thought of marriage and children up to now. I had to break off, and it's three days later now. We're in the thick of things here already and on the move all the time. Reading over what I wrote, it doesn't come across very clearly, I'm afraid, but I'm going to send it anyway. As I said, I'm not much of a letter writer, but it's the best I can do for now. I'm going to need more times to think things over anyway, but I'll be sure to write again before long. Kyle. The boy was already soaked through. He'd been standing around in the stable yard for what seemed like ages with a group of about ten other children and one by one the ponies had been led out ready saddled and bridled from the stalls inside. Now they filled the centre of the yard, all different colours and sizes, some of them with their heads drooping as if they were about to fall asleep, and others careening about all over the place. A couple of them kept pawing the ground, the metal of their shoes grating harshly against the paving stones, throwing up sparks which immediately vanished under the steady downpour of rain. A grown-up was holding the reins of each bridle, while a man with a moustache and long black boots was calling out names from a list in his hand. As he called each name, a girl or a boy came forward and was directed to one of the ponies. The boy, shivering with cold, was hoping against hope that he would be given one of the quieter ones while at the same time he was trying to cheer himself up by thinking about the time his mother had first wheeled his bike out and lifted him gently onto the seat. He looked around the yard to see if he could find her, and finally caught a glimpse of her way at the back, sheltered from the rain by an overhang of the stable roof. She was very busy talking to a woman he'd never seen before, and he tried his very best to catch her eye but it was already too late, for all at once he heard his name being called, 
and the man with the moustache and boots was pointing to one of the ponies. It was the one that had been playing about the most, and was just at that moment whirling around in circles while the man holding the reins yelled at it to stand still. As he made his first few steps towards it, he again tried to attract his mother's attention, but the pony swung around at the same moment and blocked her entirely from view. He held back from moving in any closer, but the man at his head beckoned him on. It's all right, Sonny, he called. You'll be fine once you're up there. I'll give you a leg up, no trouble at all. A kind of dizziness had taken him over by this time, and it was hard for him to understand what the man was saying. He felt altogether empty inside, as if there wasn't enough of his body left for him to tell it to go anywhere. He discovered that he was walking towards the pony without being the one who was moving his own legs, and when the man grabbed a hold of one of them and threw him into the air, it felt like all his body had got left behind. He landed with a jolt in the saddle, and the man began to tell him something else he couldn't understand, while at the same time pushing the reins around in his ice-cold fingers so roughly that they hurt. The pony continued to wheel in circles, throwing its head into the air again and again, until finally it jerked the reins out of the man's hands, backed away from his reach, and pinned the boy's knee against the yard wall. The pain of it shot down his leg, but that was nothing compared to the all-over weakness he felt, the terror of not having one ounce of strength left in his body with which to control the whirling of the pony's legs under him. Through the mist of the rain he caught sight of the tails of the other ponies disappearing under the arch at the far end of the yard, but no matter how hard he tried, there wasn't the slightest hope of getting his own to turn in that direction. Finally the man made a last desperate snatch for the lost reins, recovered them, and with a yell and a thump on the pony's back, sent them both full tilt towards the arch, the boy clutching a tangle of reins and mane, his body bouncing around in the saddle as if there was no weight to it at all. Once under the arch, even above the hammering of the pony's hooves on the stones, he could hear quite distinctly the ring of his mother's laughter resounding. Then he was out in the open, clutching whatever he could find to hang on to, the rain and the wind whipping his face. The shapes of the other riders were a vague blur in the distance, an endless distance, impossible to cover, without at some point losing all control. As he clattered back under the arch, along with the other riders an hour or so later, he couldn't believe he'd managed to stay upright in the saddle all that time. He'd never found a way to untangle the reins from the mane, so any attempt to change the pony's direction had been a waste of time. From the outset, the pony had taken its own course entirely, which had at least kept him somewhere within range of the others, but the ache in his arms and shoulders let him know how hard they'd been working. Looking for his mother, as soon as he had his feet back on the ground, he caught sight of her standing in exactly the same place as she'd been when he left, and still talking away to the same woman. She seemed to have no idea he'd been gone, and certainly showed no sign of knowing he was back. 
In fact, she was clearly surprised when he came up quietly beside her. "'Oh, you're back already, Andy,' she said when she finally noticed him. "'They didn't take you out for very long, did they? Did you have a good time?' He could tell she hadn't liked being interrupted, for rather than waiting for an answer, she turned straight back to the woman again. Not that he had any intention of answering, for he knew only too well that she would never want to hear how awful it had been. Besides, all he wanted at that moment was to be warm again. The rain had soaked through all his clothes a long time ago, and he couldn't stop himself from shaking all over. It wasn't much warmer in the car, and on the way home all his mother wanted to talk about was how kind and generous this woman had been, how she'd offered the loan of two of her ponies, one larger and one smaller. And the smaller one is just the right size for you, Andy. Isn't that perfect? His name's Paddy. You'll learn to ride so much faster, you know, if you have your own pony at home, as well as taking lessons. We can build a paddock on the far side of the hen run. There should be enough room over there, but I'll have to get started on it right away, because the ponies will be arriving in less than a week. She's even got her own horse box and says she'll be happy to drive them over herself. The boy sat beside her as she talked away, still shivering from the cold and sinking lower and lower in his seat to get further away from what she was saying. He couldn't believe how fast everything was changing. Why did it all of a sudden matter so much to his mother that he learned to ride when he was already perfectly happy with his bike? He wanted so badly to stop her from spoiling everything. But if he told her how afraid he'd been on that pony, it would only make things worse. He'd found out a long time ago that it wasn't at all a good idea to let his mother know he was afraid. The first time he tried to talk to her about it, he could tell right away from the look on her face that he was only making her angry. He didn't understand, but it was obvious there was something very wrong about being afraid, and he would have done anything not to be. But it was happening more and more these days, and the harder he tried to stop the feeling, the worse it became. The following morning, as he leant his bike low around the sharp corner at the bottom of the church, there was his mother on the far side of the henhouse, knocking in a large post. And as he flew past, he could make out a whole line of posts already set up. He was so glad to be on his bike once again that he didn't think much more about it. But when the ponies arrived a few days later, clambering down from the horse-box onto the ground between the house and the church, he could no longer keep from being afraid. He watched nervously as his mother and aunt led them across to the newly finished paddock. They seemed quiet enough, but he wasn't going to be fooled by that. He simply had to look at their eyes. Not only were they so very large, but he could tell that it only took them a single moment to take in everything that was around them. It was as if they were always plotting, and after they'd taken everything in, they knew exactly what trick to play next. As his mother had told him in the car, there was one smaller and one larger. 
The smaller, the one he knew he was going to have to ride, was dark grey with a very short tail, while the larger was a strawberry colour with its tail trailing all the way to the ground. His mother and aunt were feeding them hay now, calling out loudly to each other as they always did, and he could tell from the sounds of their voices how excited they were. He was about to swing back onto his bike when he heard his aunt calling him from behind. Andy, don't you want to come and meet Paddy? I'm sure he's longing to meet you. He'd hoped to get away without being noticed, but there was no getting away now. So he propped his bike up against the nearest wall and walked over towards the paddock. Looking across as he came nearer, he already felt how much space they were taking up. The paddock was off to one side, but it still seemed as if the place was no longer his to explore. Already the ponies were taking over everything, and he hadn't even had his first ride. Surely it had to be better than at the riding school, but something was telling him to expect the worst. He knew by now that warning feeling in the pit of his stomach, and as he opened the gate to the paddock, it gripped him extra hard. I couldn't let you go away without saying hello to your first pony, said his aunt, with her bright blue eyes shining at him. I still remember when I first saw mine, and what a thrill it was. Paddy was eating his hay and didn't even look up when he went over. The boys stood there looking at him eating, and all he could think about was how long he would need to stay around before being allowed to go back to his bike. His aunt had gone back to the larger pony by this time, and he was about to slip away unnoticed, when Paddy all at once stopped eating and lifted his head, as if only then he'd become aware that he was standing there looking at him. Their eyes met, and when they did, he found himself not afraid, as he expected, but drawn further in. The look was so strong that it prevented him from turning away, pulling him in so deeply that for a moment he lost all sense of where he was and why he was standing there. Then just as quickly as Paddy had lifted his head, he lowered it again and went back to eating his hay as if the look between them had never taken place. The only difference the boy was aware of was a sense that he'd been holding his breath for a long time, and needed extra help to get it started again. He looked around to see where his aunt was. She and his mother were brushing the larger pony on the other side of the paddock, so he could easily slip away now without either of them noticing. But for some reason, he wasn't in a hurry any more. He noticed how neatly Paddy was eating his hay, how exact the movement of his lips was, how each strand disappeared into its mouth so quickly and left no trace behind. He continued to watch him, curious as to whether he would look up again, and only when it was clear he wasn't going to did he turn and walk slowly away.
September the 28th, 1942. Dear Kyle, your letter arrived yesterday, and I have to say, it was a surprise. Even though Uncle Colin had already written to me from Cape Town, he didn't give me any details, other than that he'd found you, so I had no idea whether or not I was going to hear from you. And I want you to know right away that it wasn't my idea to go looking for you. In fact, when you told me about what he was going to do, I tried to stop him. But he's a very stubborn man when he gets a bee in his bonnet about something, and there was no way he was about to change his mind. I honestly didn't believe it would serve any purpose to tell you about the baby, given that you were so far away, and besides, I was afraid my uncle would give you a really rough time. And whatever the situation, that didn't seem fair. But it's still not clear from your letter if you wrote because of him or because you really wanted to. And the difference between the two really matters to me. As far as I'm concerned, there's no point in our writing to each other if you've been forced into it. There's also no point in hiding from you the shock it was to find out I was pregnant. It was my worst fear, and as far as my parents see it, the most awful thing I could possibly have done. Indeed, their reactions have been more extreme than I could possibly have imagined. I must have told you when you were here that my brother, Derek, has been a prisoner of war in Germany for nearly three years now. And as you can imagine, that in itself has not exactly been an easy matter for us all to deal with. Now I've gone ahead and got into trouble too. A very different kind of trouble. But this time there's only myself to blame. It was a ghastly scene when they finally found out. I put it off as long as I could, but of course I had to face the music eventually. That was about six weeks ago. In answer to your letter, I couldn't help having some kind of hope for the future, although it was clear to me from the very first that we weren't going to have very long, and that was why I was determined to make the most of it. Of course, now that I'm expecting a baby, there's a whole different future ahead of me. You wrote about not wanting to be married or have children until later in life, and of course, I've always felt the same way. After all, I'm only 19, and to be a mother at that age is the last thing I would have chosen. With all that said, it has helped to hear from you. I'm not sure that it changes much, but at least I don't feel quite so alone. But if we continue to write to each other, and I'd like that, my letters are not going to be exactly cheerful, so don't go expecting anything like that. I'm also aware of your own situation and how difficult it must be to find time for letters. But I do look forward to your next one, and hope you will write again soon. Rebecca
The next morning, while his mother was getting the larger pony ready to ride with him, his aunt showed him how to put on Paddy's saddle and bridle. She made it all so much more fun than at the riding school. There were special tricks she showed him, like putting a finger into the side of Paddy's mouth before slipping the bit in and making sure, once the saddle was on, to tighten the girth a second time. All ponies, she said, blow their tummies out when they first feel the girth tightening. Then after they become used to it, they relax again. So, unless you pull it up a couple more holes, the saddle will slide off, and you'll slide off with it. And we wouldn't want that, would we? It also made so much difference that Paddy, with his aunt holding the bridle, kept perfectly still while he got on and stayed standing until his mother called for him to follow her to the back gate. This gate led onto a quiet side road, and he walked close behind her on the grass verge for a mile or two before she turned off into an open field and broke into a trot. Paddy broke into a trot behind her, and the very next moment he was flying through the air and landing shoulder-first on the ground. The grass was thick, and he managed to roll over without hurting himself, but the shock of the fall was so unexpected that it was a while before he could take in what had happened. He staggered to his feet, in a daze, looked across the field to discover that Paddy was already very far away, galloping at full speed with his mother in full pursuit. He watched her catch up with him stride by stride until she was alongside, then bend low in the saddle to grab hold of the dangling reins. Without slowing down, she swung around, swinging Paddy around with her, and headed back to where the boy was standing. As they drew closer, he saw how Paddy's head was thrown back against the tug of the reins, his top lip curled to show the full array of his teeth. As they pulled up in front of him, for a split second the boy was aware of the tooth and eye coming together, the flash of the one and the glare of the other thrust at him in combination like a challenge. Then his head was down in the grass, eye lowered and teeth put to work, tearing at the thick tafts as if neither eye nor teeth had any part in what had just taken place. In that single moment, though, the boy knew whatever trick Paddy had come up with to be able to fling him to the ground so effortlessly, he was quite prepared to play it for a second time as soon as he was back in the saddle again. "'Come on, Andy, don't just stand there,' said his mother. "'Take the reins and get back on, and this time do not let him get his head down. "'You have to keep him on a tight rein. "'As soon as you feel his head go down, pull on the reins as hard as you can.' Still in the days, he looked at her, unable to believe what she was asking him to do. But he knew that expression on her face well enough, and how important it was for him to hold back his tears. If only he could concentrate on getting back on, he had a chance of keeping them down. But the same feeling was beginning to come over him as at the riding school. Every ounce of strength was draining out of his body, and he found it impossible to move. Come on, Andy, we haven't got all day. Take the reins. His mother leant down with the reins held out in front of her, and something that wasn't his own hand took them from her 
something that wasn't his own leg, found itself groping for the stirrup, swinging itself over and landing him back in the saddle. Paddy was still so intent on the grass that he didn't even seem to notice he had a rider again. "'Pull up his head,' said his mother. "'It's not good for him to be eating all that new grass anyway.' By the time he was trotting behind his mother again across the field, there was so little strength left in his arms from pulling so hard on the reins that he could only wait in a frozen terror to be flung back onto the ground. But to his amazement, there he was still when they reached a wood and an opening into a long, narrow path between trees. He felt safer then and only a single path to follow and did he dare believe that Paddy might have forgotten how easily he was able to get rid of him if he really wanted to. A little more strength was creeping back into his body now, but there still wasn't that much to go on. "'How are you doing back there, Andy? Ready for a bit of a canter?' Without waiting for an answer, his mother broke into a canter ahead of him, and his whole body tensed as Paddy broke into a canter at the same time. Immediately he could feel his head go down, and with the last remaining strength he jerked up on the reins. And he wasn't only still on the saddle a moment later, but discovering for the first time how much easier it was to canter than to trot. He was no longer bouncing loosely about, but after only a few strides, rocking back and forth in the saddle to the smooth, and comforting rhythm of the motion. Cecilia's Diary, 2nd of December, 1944. The reason I took up this old diary again was to help me sort out what to do about Gillian. But now that she's safely under her roof, I would still like to make an effort to keep it going, if only to see me through the winter. Edry and this rectory are such a shock after Ardrochen, the house quite the coldest and dampest I've ever lived in, and I've known some cold and damp ones. The damp never left entirely, even during the summer, and now that winter's closed in so suddenly I can feel it right through my bones, but difficult as the times may be right now, I have to remain strong. What with Gillian needing all the encouragement I can give her and Henry in so much pain, he's scarcely making it from one day to the next. At least it wasn't as bad as I expected, talking to him about Gillian. We actually ended up having a very lively conversation about what the war has done to everyone and how there's no choice but to do our part for those less fortunate than ourselves. It was the first time I'd heard him talk of how badly he feels about not taking an active part in the fighting. While I was reminded how much better off I am than Sister Martha or Harold's Joan. At least I have a husband at home, and I wonder how they often manage to sleep at night for worrying if they'll ever see theirs again. The best I can do, I know, is to keep planning ahead, and only this morning I had quite a brainwave for our next summer holiday. 
I'd already arranged for us to use the same house, but what if we took Cobby and Paddy with us this time instead of the bicycles? It would certainly take some working out, but if organized well in advance, I'm sure we could pull it off. Say we put the ponies on the train as far as Perth, then let Harry, Gillian and Andy take turns riding them the rest of the way. The ride from Perth shouldn't take more than two days, and I'm sure dear Mary Linton would be happy to put us up halfway. The only thing I'm not sure about is whether Andy will be ready by that time for such a long haul. He's not doing so bad, but he's still pretty nervous, although that's bound to improve over the next six months. And what a power of good it would be for Henry to get back on a horse again. It's been as long for him as it was for me. Who knows, it might be the solution we're looking for to sort out his back. Anything's worth trying rather than lying in bed all day. And there's that huge field right below the house, which I noticed remained quite empty during our time there last summer. I should phone the owners at some point and find out if it belongs to the house and if they'd let us use it. Hmm, the idea gets better the more I think about it and something like that to look forward to. The winter already feels less of a trial to get through. It makes me so happy that I picked up on Julian's suggestion that we should all get riding again. And what a perfect coincidence that Alex McPhee should think of setting up a new riding school at the same time. Such an enterprising man he is to take on such a, such a risk in as shaky times as these, and I so hope it works out for him. He's certainly got an eye for a horse. The one he showed off to me and Julian last week was a real beauty. Diamond, I think he said its name was. He says he wants to race him in the coming point-to-point season and was asking if we knew of a good jockey. I nearly mentioned Julian on the spot, but didn't quite dare. I'll wait until he finds out how good she is, and I don't think that will be long in coming. There's one other item that looks promising. I ran into Edward and Faye after church last Sunday, and they told me about a theatre group they're involved in which takes nativity plays round the local churches at Christmas time. Faye said they're very adventurous and always on the lookout for new ideas. Anyway, they'd have invited me to the group's next meeting, and I really think I should go. It's quite a while since I was involved in theatre, just as it's also quite a while since I was on a horse. But I have to remember both were once an essential part of my life. Two of my first passions when Gillian was no more than a rambunctious child and mother unstoppable. Such a tower of strength she was in those days and I used to marvel at where all that energy came from, how much she used to put into those home concerts, and how many people thrived on her attention and care. But it's forward I need to look right now, not back. Bringing her with me as the best possible inspiration to keep me going.
The boy had got up earlier than usual so that he could have at least the first part of the morning on his bike. Later on, there was one more of those riding lessons he hated so much, and he knew he wouldn't mind going quite as much as long as he'd had some time on his bike first. But as soon as he opened the front door, the air was resounding with a deafening clatter of hooves, above which he could hear quite clearly voices shouting out commands. The sounds seemed to be coming from the area between the house and the church, but even from so far away as the front door, the sheer volume stopped him dead in his tracks. He stood on the front step for a few minutes, listening more closely and deciding whether he should continue or go on back inside. In the end, he chose a moment when the sounds were furthest away and crept forward, hugging close to the house wall. When he reached the wall's end and peered around the corner, what first came into view was his mother's back moving away from him. She was standing high above him on some kind of a cart and brandishing a whip over her head. It was only when she turned back around and began to come towards him that he realized the cart was being pulled by Cobby, the larger pony, and that it was above his back she was cracking the whip. As they came towards him, he was bucking and prancing from side to side, looking as if he was doing all he possibly could to rid himself of the cart. There were two large wheels with spokes, like on his bicycle, except they were made of wood instead of metal, and one after the other they were lifting off the ground as Cobby threw himself about. They seemed to be aiming straight for the wall where he was standing, and he shrank back closer against it. Shutting his eyes, he heard the swish of the pony's tail pass close to his face and the sharp crack of the whip in his ear. Half opening his eyes again, he was aware of them turning again and heading back towards the garden where the bank dropped steeply down. From where he was standing, it seemed impossible for them not to plunge all the way over the edge. But at the last moment his mother, standing up to her full height on the cart and pulling on a single rein, only forced the pony's head and neck to double around. The cart hung for a moment over the edge, one wheel spinning in mid-air, the pony pivoting on its back legs only. Then at the same time wheel and front hooves came smashing down again, and in a sudden forward lurch they were storming back past him towards the already opened gate. One wheel missed the corner post by inches, then they were gone, absorbed instantly into the steady dream of traffic and leaping behind a silence filled only by the beating of the boy's heart. He leaned back against the house wall, waiting for his heart to slow down, knowing he would be quite unable to move until it did. Across from him his bicycle was propped up against the wall, and for where he was standing every detail was extra clear, the patches of rust on the mudguards, the silver glimmer of the handlebars, the missing spoke on one of the wheels. There was nothing stopping him, from moving towards it now, but the distance was too great for his legs to carry him. 
The thumping of his heart was all that existed for the moment, and he knew it was simply a matter of waiting for as long as required for it to calm down. Then, just as he was about ready to make the first move, he heard ever so faintly the clip-clop of hooves above the hum of the traffic. Even though he knew it must be his mother returning, he was puzzled by how calm and regular the hooves were, an altogether different sound from the frenzied clatter that had stormed past him through the gates. He'd hoped to have gathered up his bike and be well out of the way by the time they came back, but with the hooves sounding ever closer, he found himself quite unable to move. He could only watch from against the wall as they turned in from the street, his mother sitting at ease now, the rain slack in her hands. Cobby was soaked in sweat, head low and foam drooling from the sides of his mouth. They drew up right next to where he was, resting against the wall, and his mother smiled down at him from her seat on the cart. "'Are you still there, Andy?' she said. "'I thought you'd have been on your bike long ago.' She jumped down and went over to stroke Cobby's neck. "'That was quite a tussle we had, wasn't it, old boy?' she said, stroking his nose softly. "'You look tired enough now, though, and perhaps you won't make quite such a fuss.' and bother next time. The boy took a trial step forward, but finding that his legs weren't working well enough yet, reached back to the wall again for support. He knew from the look on his mother's face that she was working on another of her plans, and he couldn't bear to know what it was. She began to unfasten the straps around Cobby's chest, then she laid the poles of the cart on the ground and pushed it back from where he was standing, with his head still down. I'm going to need to give him a good rub down before he gets cold. You can't be too careful with a strong sweat like that, she murmured, as she began leading him away. Then she stopped and turned around. Are you all right, Andy? she said. You're as white as a sheet. I'm sorry if I took you a little by surprise, but this is the only way I can get Cobby trained for pulling this trap. You see, as soon as he settled down more, we'll be able to ride in the trap to your riding lessons. It will save a lot on petrol, which means Dad will have more rations left for visiting time. With which she walked away, leading Cobby and disappeared behind the church. He'd been right, and now he knew what the plan was. He looked at what his mother had called a trap, abandoned and seemingly harmless now that its poles were on the ground. And he only had to imagine himself up there for his heart to start pounding again. He took one last look at his bike, but decided against it. He turned instead towards the garden, his legs only just obeying him at his point, he stumbled down the bank and crossed the lawn to where there was a mass of daffodils. He already found a way of creeping in among them without disturbing the flowers, and right at the centre the ground had been hollowed out. On a good day he was happy to lie on his back for a long time and look up at the sky through the spread of gold. 
But today wasn't turning out to be a good day at all. Even before he reached the centre, he could feel the tears come rushing in. But only when he knew he was fully hidden by the hollow did he let them burst all the way through. Third of October, 1942. Dear Rebecca, thank you very much for your letter, which reached me yesterday. I'm writing again, so soon, not only because for once I have some time to myself today, but because I wanted to let you know right away that the letter was my own decision. It wasn't only on account of your uncle asking me, and by the way, he wasn't that rough with me. I certainly had a hard time hearing what he had to say, and it took me a while before I was ready to write. But given the situation, it could have been much worse. The hardest part was bringing back the details of what he was talking about. Because, <clears throat> and you would understand this a lot better if you knew what it was like out here, because that leave of mine seems a very long time ago now. It was hard for me to believe when I finally managed to work it out that only four months had passed since then. The uncertainty of making it from one day to the next does very strange things with time. I've had to admit myself, though, after a lot of thinking, that your uncle was right to come and find me. Neither of us wanted a baby to come out of what happened between us, but now that it has, I have to take responsibility for my own part. Even more so after reading your letter and finding out how badly you're being treated. I'm really sorry about that, and hope that being a little easier on you now that they know I've been found. I've become clear about one thing, though. We need to see each other as soon as we can. That's the only way we'll know where we stand. I have no information yet about the timing of my next leave, but rumour has it that a week or so will be given to us for Christmas. As soon as I know something more definite, I'll let you know. And meanwhile, I'll continue to write when I can. Love, Kyle. Cecilia's Diary, 28th of February, 1945. I woke up this morning with a Mendelssohn violin concerto going through my head and along with it the still vivid memory of Mother playing it in Edinburgh with the Scottish National Orchestra. I was with Father only a few rows from the front, and he'd worked himself up into an awful state. Of course, he knew the score off by heart, and was in an agony of suspense when it came to the more difficult passages, terrified she was going to play a wrong note. He kept muttering to himself, and shifting about in his seat. Knowing his perfectionism as well as I do, I'm sure, she could never have played it up to his standards, and his constant fretting almost ruined the performance for me. How I managed to keep focused was by watching her face as she played, that serene expression of hers that made her 
concert performances so riveting. I remember also how dreadfully tired she looked afterwards, for the audience refused to let her go. She must have played at least three encores. I'd never seen her face so drawn, and looking back now I recognise that that concert is a time when she reached the limit of her endurance. It was only two weeks later that her heart gave out, and the doctors said there was nothing they could have done, that she was already too far gone by the time they got her to the hospital. And every morning, this one in particular with a memory so strong, I wake up unable to believe she's not with us anymore, that I can't simply pick up the phone and talk to her. Of course, it didn't help that we had to start packing for the move the day after the funeral, leaving father all alone in that enormous house and with no idea what with the war dragging on and all, when we would see him again. And talking about things dragging on and on, I'm at my wit's end about Henry. Nobody seems to have a clue about what to do about that back of his. Here I was yesterday trying my very best to convince Dr. Aiken that lying in bed for hours on end was not the answer, and it was like shouting in the ears of a deaf man. Edward from the theatre group gave me the name and number last Sunday of an osteopath here in town who has earned locally a very strong reputation. But when I mentioned that as a possibility to Aiken, he about hit the roof. Nothing deaf about him on that subject matter. He ranted on and on about osteopaths as quacks, and if I went that way he'd wash his hands of the whole case. Well, quite honestly, that would be the best of news. <coughs> In fact, it was exactly what I needed to make a final decision. I'm calling the osteopath for an appointment today. At least the plans for the summer are firming up. Mary says she'll be only too happy to put us up for the night, and she has plenty stable room for the ponies as well. Julian is very keen to come along for the ride, and Alex has promised her the loan of a horse for most of the time that we're up there. It's a long way off yet, though, and there's no sign of the cold letting up. These days I only seem to be warm in bed with half a dozen blankets on top of me, and getting up in the morning has become the biggest challenge of all. 